Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear the neighbor's dog barking behind me and Dave Teruso. Have you had impure thoughts? I'm like, in my head, I'm like, yeah, I don't just jerk off to nothing like a serial killer. I think about dirty things. What are you, nuts? Yes, I had impure thoughts. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to give a little shout out to our new Patreon patron, Adrian Sullivan, who pledged $25 a month or more. We give a little shout out every time someone gives $25 a month or more. And remember, if you become a Patreon patron and you give $10 a month or more, you get access to ad-free episodes. You, you Right the same time we put the episodes out there on the free feed, we'll put them on our Patreon page ad-free with all the ads removed. So that's a great new bonus. Plus, you know, there's bonus stories there. There's prizes for different amounts you give. It's all a wonderful way to help keep risk running. That's at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk. I also wanted to let everyone know we're doing a very, very special show this week. On August 18th in New York City, the Story Studio, our school, we're producing a show called In It Together, Stories of Strength in Diversity. It's all a part of the Speak Up, Rise Up Festival in New York City this August. August 18th at the Connolly Theater, we're featuring stories that celebrate this melting pot of a country that we have. Beautiful, wonderful people sharing really remarkable stories. You can find out more at speakupriseup.com. Finally, today's episode is brought to you by adamandeve.com. Go to adamandeve.com and get 50% off just about any item. And when you do, you'll get a free sex swing and free shipping. You just enter the code RISK at the checkout. That's R-I-S-K at adamandeve.com. They have so many wonderful things there. Many are extremely affordable and also a lot of really high-end stuff as well. I highly recommend it. Risk fans who have taken advantage of this offer have been really, really thrilled by how much they get out of it. 50% off of any item, a free sex swing, free shipping. Use the code RISK at adamandeve.com. Now, here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is herbie mann and Dwayne allman behind me now and until i can figure out how to deal with the sound issues in my brand new apartment there will probably also be a clunky refrigerator and a neighbor's barking dog behind me too we're calling this week's episode out of bounds Three stories about things just getting out of hand. 
And it's an appropriate feeling title for an episode after this past weekend. As you know, a couple days ago in Charlottesville, Virginia, we lived through another one of those moments that, uh, you know, Thomas Paine described in 1776. These are the times that try men's souls. Sometimes it feels especially trying for us here at risk because we place so much value. We cherish welcoming people of all walks of life here. Liberals, conservatives, rich, poor men, women, trans, queer people, people of different religions, colors, cultures, backgrounds, ages, abilities, and more. I think it's important to remember clearly as Americans what came before this weekend. So about two years and two months ago, Donald Trump announced he was running for president. If you remember, he kicked it all off that very first day by saying Mexicans are rapists. Uh, Later in the campaign, he claimed with no evidence whatsoever that thousands and thousands of Muslim Americans were celebrating on the streets of New Jersey on September 11th. Uh, He went on to say there should be a complete and total shutdown of all Muslims from entering the United States. And as the campaign wore on, he was retweeting the sentiments of neo-Nazis. He carefully avoided criticizing the former Grand Wizard of the KKK, David Duke, for his endorsement of Trump. As a candidate, remember, he told his supporters at his rallies that it would be ideal if people who were protesting at those rallies, if they had to be carried away on stretchers. And of course, we all got to hear a recording of him bragging about sexually assaulting women. The list of hateful or reckless things he said during the campaign just goes on and on. Now, back then in 2015, 2016, I predicted that all of that was leading up to a weekend like this past one. It couldn't have been clearer that this candidate was deliberately tapping into the worst layers of the American psyche, deliberately stoking a fire of fear, deliberately revving up an engine of hate. And it worked. He won the White House. And he put Steve Bannon, Stephen Miller, Sebastian Gorka, and Jeff Sessions into prominent positions on his staff, each of whom has a history of pitching in for white supremacist causes in this way or that. Gorka was even once photographed wearing an insignia linked to the Nazis. Within days of the election, a Trump spokesman was on Fox News saying, maybe there should be. Muslim internment camps started in our country. All of that was just before the inauguration. So, this past weekend, these groups that gathered to protest the potential removal of this statue of Robert E. Lee from the campus of the University of Virginia, they described themselves as neo-Nazis, KKK members, and white nationalists. Some carried swastika flags and Confederate flags. Some chanted Hail Trump and gave the Nazi salute. Some wore Make America Great Again hats. David Duke himself said 
that this rally was a turning point. He said it was proof that, quote, we are going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump. That's why we voted for him. And by the time the dust settled in uh, Charlottesville, three people were dead, 19 were injured, and not surprisingly, the president refused to use the words white nationalists or neo-Nazis in his very brief remarks about the weekend. He suggested that the blame was on, quote, many sides, many sides, as if those who showed up to counter-protest the hate groups were equally to blame. Now, most of you know a few few things about where I'm coming from, that I lean left, that I passionately, passionately feel this country would be much better off if Trump were removed from office. But most importantly, that I am a staunch defender of free speech. I defend the right of a Nazi to march around with a swastika in public, as unhelpful as I think that expression is. But when speech gets that out of bounds, it can lead to things like driving cars into people. And that's indefensible. Now, I've been reading a book lately that's fascinating me. It's called Why Buddhism is True. The author, Robert Wright, he studies evolutionary psychology. He looks at the way that natural selection has hardwired our brains to perceive things, to react to things. He says that during the millions of years that we were hunter-gatherers, our brains evolved to make us extremely tribal. Our species learned to be anxious and emotional about people who look different or think different. And yet, we have the capacity to get centered, to just be with that anxiousness, to breathe our way through it, and to be able to disagree with or even challenge one another in a civil way. Not necessarily to avoid confronting one another, not to deny our differences, but to face them calmly and compassionately. And it's not just Nazis hitting people with cars I'm worried about. At risk, we get a lot of heat from people on the left yelling about the curation of the show and yelling about the storytellers. People from the social justice warrior wing have called me a racist, a bully, a rape enabler, an accessory to murder. These people are lashing out their tweets or emails or comments on the discussion boards. They're at a boiling point of emotion and they're using words like weapons. I just don't feel that that way of engaging is helpful. (laughs) Now, after saying all that, this might sound really strange to you, but even after Charlottesville, 
I'm actually quite optimistic lately. I spent months after the election suffering in a deep bout of depression about the state of the country. In fact, just a couple weeks ago, I finally caved and went back on antidepressants after a year or so off. But there's other things I've been doing lately that have made me feel more hopeful. I've been listening to and sometimes chatting with people with very different points of view from mine. I've been listening to conservative podcasts <laughs> like the Ben Shapiro show and the Commentary Magazine podcast. But even better, I've been listening to podcasts where people on the left and right and center have in-depth conversations where they're able to strongly disagree with one another, but peacefully. Like the Waking Up podcast with Sam Harris or the Rubin Report with Dave Rubin. I disagree with things I hear on those shows all the time. But I'm inspired to hear the civility, the, the open-mindedness with which these people are sitting down together to hash things out. Meanwhile, there's lots of courses and books that are becoming available now on critical thinking skills, on how to debate people without spiraling into fights. And of course, as I've pointed out so many times on the podcast, there's so many wonderful groups like Indivisible, or swing left, or organizing for action that are encouraging people to breathe, calm down, and do some good. Let's never forget, hundreds of thousands of Americans gave their lives to defeat the Confederacy and then the Nazis. That's why you and I have to do what we can to make sure that Charlottesville does not become the new normal. So in one way, I hope that David Duke was right. This past weekend could be a turning point. It could be the moment that calm, cool, and collected peaceful warriors finally overpower all the screaming extremists and make America sane again. Let's see if we can do that. <laughs> okay. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story that was shared at our recent Risk Live show in Philadelphia from the comedian Dave Teruso. I'll talk a little bit more about this after the story, but there's some alleged criminal activity on the part of a couple of the characters in that story. To our knowledge, no one was convicted of those alleged crimes, but they were widely reported. I'll talk about that more later. But before Dave's story, we're going to do something we do every once in a while. We're going to feature a story that was not told at a Risk Live show, but at a Mystery Box show in Portland, Oregon. Our good friends at mysteryboxshow.com sometimes share with us stories that they recorded out there. Rocky Wing can be found on Twitter at underscore pastor underscore fail. <laughs> Here he is now, Rocky Wing, with a story we call Second Coming.
September of 2009, and we have our fourth child. She is born. If you do the math backwards, it means that me and my wife had sex in January. And then there's always something weird that happens with the hormones that kick in, and, and uh, we ended up having sex again in February a couple times, and then, uh, and then that was it for the rest of the pregnancy, which wasn't unusual. Uh, I'm an understanding male. I, I get that things are a little cramped down there, and you're a little bigger, and things and doesn't always work out, and but it was more than just the pregnancy. Uh, sex with me and my wife had been this gradual decline over the years. We started like many newlyweds, you know, three or four times a week. And through the years, it dropped to once a week, then once a month, then uh, every other month, to where it would get to maybe once every three months or six months. So to go uh, eight months was not a big deal for our relationship, though it was a big deal for me. Sex for me isn't so much a, a physical need that I have. It is a very emotional thing. It is a deep uh, connection for me. And not only that, but one of my biggest struggles that I deal with is rejection. So to go to my wife and to ask for this and to be rejected is uh, crushing me. And so I know after we have this baby or she delivers the baby uh, vaginally, I know that you have to wait for things to heal up and, and calm down, right? And go back to normal and but now it's February again and we had not had sex for a year and I'm in a place where I can't really tell anyone about this because I'm a pastor and as a pastor on a stage you're supposed to be an example and part of being an example is you're supposed to have a good marriage and so if I were to tell any of my friends who are either fellow pastors at the church that I'm going to or people that actually go and sit down in the congregation at my church that me and my wife hadn't had sex, by the way, in a year, I don't think I would have my job too long. And this is the job that I dreamed of having since I was 16 years old. This was a job that I went into debt for at a four-year Bible college. My degree says ministry with a minor in theology. <laughs> I'm qualified for nothing else, friends. <laughs> so I keep it a secret. And now it's February again. And we haven't had sex for two years. And it's February again, and we haven't had sex for three years. And then I finally tell someone after three and a half years, I open up to someone I trust. And me and my wife begin to go to counseling. Every Monday night for a year, we meet two hours with this man and his wife. And it's February again. And it's February again. Now it has been six years that me and my wife have not had sex. And that, I remember that uh, January, I made a New Year's resolution. <laughs> this is January 2015. I made this resolution that I'm going to try. 
with this help of the God that I preach about on stage every weekend. And I wake up every morning to go on my run and I'm praying and I, and I get home very excited and I pray for her and this goes on for two months but then it's February again and it's been six years. And I remember the night, I remember going in to give her a hug good night. At this point, our only touching is hugging and holding hands, we're not even kissing anymore. And I go to give her a hug good night and she feels my erection press up against her belly and she, her body turns rigid and she takes a step back. And that was when I knew my marriage was over. But I can't get a divorce. Pastors can't get divorced. People in the church can, but again, you're that example. If I get a divorce, not only do I lose my four kids, but I lose my job, I lose my calling, I lose all the friends I've made over the 18 years in this job. And so I keep that secret and i'm living a double life now on stage one person at home another person me and my wife's relationship continues to deteriorate we're not even talking now she's in one room i'm in the other room we're texting in the same house never even touching now not even holding hands or hugging and into this existence, a very lonely existence, a very rejected, not able to even show this to anyone, carrying this lie inside of me, this woman enters into my life. This beautiful woman with the, the soul of an artist, Ari comes in. She goes to my church. And I remember one of our first deep conversations, she asks if she can pray for me <laughs> or if I can pray for her. That's how our conversation starts. And we begin to have this uh, conversation over Facebook message. <laughs> and we stay up till 1 a.m., 2 a.m. every night for three weeks. And she's the first person I give the key to my soul to. And I tell her everything about me. And she accepts me in a way that no one ever has. And I'm able to be vulnerable with her. And I develop this deep crush. I'm getting butterflies in my stomach when I see her again. It's this strange feeling. I start writing poetry. It's like, who am I? <laughs> and I'm totally in love. But I can't do anything because I'm a pastor and I'm married and I have this life that I'm trying to uphold. So I don't do anything until September 9th last year and I'm in my office and it's late at night and she comes in she was a leader at the youth group she comes into my office and we're talking and she stands up and starts talking I'm sitting down and she sits down right on my lap everything freezes <laughs> except for other things <laughs> And to be in a space where you have been rejected for six and a half years, to have somebody that you are beginning to get feelings for express that, and then she leans back and her hair presses against my face, and I put my hand on her, her hip, and we just freeze there, not even talking. And I push her gently off me, 
And I grab her by the hands. I want to look her in the eyes. I sit her down and we look at each other. And, and I say, we need to talk about what's going on here. She's like, yeah. I said, we need to talk about this crush that we're having. And she's like, we? I'm like, yeah. I really like you. And she expresses her feelings for me. And I say, well, what are we going to do? I'm married. I'm pastor. I'm your pastor. <laughs> and she had complications of her own. She was going to college in order to save money. She was living with her parents, who also went to my church. <laughs> and so we began a secret relationship. Again, over Facebook, <laughs> just talking. We would watch Netflix together. <laughs> okay, started on three, two, one, and then talk about it during. <laughs> we would maybe kiss for like 30 seconds at a time here and there. And then in November, we went to a camp where she was the song leader and <laughs> I was the speaker. And the cool thing about being the camp speaker is you get your own cabin. <laughs> And I asked if she wanted to come to my room. And she said, yes, I do. And when everybody else went to sleep, after I preached my sermon, <laughs> she came in to my room. And that was the first time I had made love in six and a half years. And afterwards, we turned and faced each other. And I said to her, Ari, I want you to know that that was more than physical for me. That was, that was a connection. We are now connected and nobody will tear us apart. And we continued on through the months in the secret relationship. And we decided to break up in January. And the reason was, is we hadn't been found out yet. We were really good at keeping this thing secret. Nobody knew, nobody guessed. And so we decided we we're going to break up in January, and then I was going to do what I needed to do. I was going to get a divorce. I was going to tell my boss. I was going to step down from leadership. And then when the dust settled from it all, we would get back together and not tell anyone about the affair. And through the entire month of January that I was broken up with her, I began to realize that this plan that I had would destroy me it would destroy her and it would destroy us because if we planned on getting together and we planned on getting married then everybody would always ask us how did you meet and we would all know that our real foundation of our relationship was a lie and i said we need to come clean so january 26th of 2016 i asked my supervisor to come into my office and i told him the story i just told you that was a Tuesday. On Friday, I lost my job. On Saturday morning, I, I told my wife and moved out of the house. On Monday, our entire staff heard. The following weekend, they told the entire church that Pastor Rocky is no longer a pastor with us. He confessed to adultery. And for those that weren't there the weekend, they sent out a mass email to everyone <laughs> on the uh, following Monday. I had a lot of guilt because I, I had a lot of trust and I broke that trust and I lived a lie and I knew that. So I said, I will do whatever they ask of me. I said, I will do whatever you ask of me, church leadership, except I am going to get a divorce and I'm going to be with Ari. 
but everything else I will do. And one of the things they asked me to do was not to contact her. And so I didn't through February, through March, through April, and through May. And those were the darkest months of my life, not being connected to my soul that I had fallen in love with. But in those months, I was also rejected by the church. I was judged. I was criticized. I was kicked to the curb. I was rejected. And finally, after being rejected again and again and again, after trying to do it right, I just said, well, if this is what it looks like to do it right, I'm just going to do it wrong, <laughs> you know? And so at the end of May, I called Ari and I said, I need to see you. And she said, okay, I need to see you. And I picked her up at Rock Creek PCC. <laughs> and we, uh, we drove to Cathedral Park. And we're walking along, and we were both feeling it. Like, it's been a long time since we connected <laughs> sexually. <laughs> and there's these um, lockable public restrooms. <laughs> In a, at Cathedral Park, and it's amazing. <laughs> I didn't know how multi-purpose a sink was, but it's um, so true. We found out that uh, there was a member of the congregation that saw us walk in the bathroom together. They called the pastor of the church. The pastor of the church called her parents. And her parents told her, you got to start being honest with us when you're going to see Rocky. And she said, okay, and started being honest. And they started getting angrier and angrier as the weeks went on until one night she said, I'm going out to see Rocky. We're going to go longboarding. And they said, if you walk out of that house, you're not welcome back in. And that's how we began to live together. <laughs> and we lived together for two weeks and it was the most amazing two weeks of my life because for once we had what we never had before, which was time. We did all the things that we dreamed about doing over Facebook all those months of just going to buy groceries and walking down the aisle hand in hand and doing our laundry together, like that's just sexy, underwear mixing. <laughs> and, uh, and making love every morning and every night and just sleeping next to my love. And then her birthday was approaching and I decided I wanted to get her, um, get us a couple's matching tattoos. Yeah, how sexy is that? I have the, the the triangle and she she has the matching triangle on her other arm you know so when we hold hands it's like they're swinging like this <laughs> super cute that was a thursday night after we'd lived together for two weeks and and we're, we have her all bandaged up and we're looking at our arms together and she gets a text from her dad and the text says call me so she calls him and he says your your mom is being rushed to the emergency room in an ambulance. And I hand her the keys. I say, go to your mom. I don't think they'd want to see me right now. She calls me frantically at 1 a.m. Says her mom just came out of surgery and has a 1% chance of living. 
I said, do you want me at the hospital? She said, yes. And that is how all of her aunts and her uncles and her cousins and her grandparents found out about me, that they only met as a pastor. And it became apparent that I wasn't there to be their pastor, but I was there for Ari. Her mom passed away on Friday. It was a, a rupture in her brain, so sudden they don't even know what was the cause. Um, three weeks ago, we decided to go public on Facebook, um, <laughs> announce our relationship officially. At the last count on our relationship status update Facebook change, we have 11 teary faces. <laughs> and two angry faces. <laughs> um, we've decided to delete all the angry comments, but we usually take a screenshot of them before and, and <laughs> laugh at them later. Uh, we're trying to stay very positive about it, uh, but it is, it is difficult <laughs> for sure. People don't want to hear the story, but we're... Uh, we're together now, and um, as I think over this story, and um, I think of where I am in life now, every once in a while I have these moments. One hit me yesterday, as I look at all I've lost. I've lost my career, I've lost all my friends, I've lost my community, I've lost my family, and it hits me hard in these moments. You know, the, the most amazing thing is, <laughs> is when I walk off of this stage, I get to sit next to my love. I get to sit next to my soulmate. Thank you. Uh, one thing's sure, certainly stirred up plenty of action. I had an interesting evening after I got rid of the cops. Good for you. I had a drink with Nancy. She's stuck on you. You're stuck on her. She's out of bounds, remember? You got a big problem, boy. Out of bounds. Married your best friend. Yeah, you got a problem. Shut up and go to sleep. How's it going, everybody? All right. When I was a little boy, I wanted to be a Catholic priest. But instead, I grew up to be a raunchy nightclub comedian. And uh, this is the story of my journey from one vocation to the other. So I'm Italian from South Philly. Uh, Italian people are very Catholic because they come from the place where the Pope is from where Vatican is, you know, uh, so being Catholic was everything in my family, you know, we didn't just not eat meat on Fridays during Lent, we didn't eat meat on Fridays ever, and in those kind of Catholic Italian families or Irish families, a priest is like a celebrity, if the priest comes by your house, it's like a story, it's exciting, and priests are always treated with this kind of like, oh, 
Father Stevenson came by. That was amazing. And I, I, I like that. I was like, I want to be a priest. This seems cool. I also liked the homily. And especially like if the priest made the audience laugh. And I guess I should have known then I wanted to be a stand-up comedian if I thought of the people in the church as an audience. Not like, you know, what they actually were, which is like believers. Um, in um, fourth grade... I met this priest, Father Cademo, who took a shine to me. And I uh, used to come and take me out of class to help him with stuff. In, in a Catholic school, the priests are sort of like the mafia in a nice way. They can just do whatever they want. So he'd just walk in and interrupt the teacher and be like, I need Dave Teruso, come up here. And I would go to the front of the class. And he used to pick me up by my heel like a trap, like swing me around and all the kids would scream and I'd be like, yay, attention, ooh, this is good. Um, and I felt special and I was like, I want to be like this guy. He's funny, he's charismatic, you know, people think he's cool. He took me out of class, I would do errands with him. Uh, one time my parents had him over for dinner. I remember very specifically like sitting on his lap at dinner being like, this is cool. Like you go to people's houses and you hang out with them and you get free food and you get to talk to them and you get to leave. This is, I want to do this. The next year, Father Kadema was moved to another church, another parish. And the year after that, I'm having dinner at home with my parents and my mom said, guess what I just found out? Father Kadema got hit by a bus. And I was like, oh my God, it's terrible. And she said, yeah, he's in a convalescence home in Miami. I was like, he's alive? She's like, yeah. I'm like, wow, that seems to me like proof that like God takes care of his employees. That's, this is really the kind of job that I want. He got hit by a bus and he lived. I want, I, want, I want those kind of superpowers. I better be a priest. I wanted to be a priest until I was 13. And that's when I started getting boners on the reg. Like constant boners. Like one boner would start to deflate, the next boner would come up. My dick was like a wacky inflatable arms guy, just down and back up again, down and back up again, down and back up again. I'm like, I have homework to do, boner, leave me alone. And I knew even at 13, I can't become a priest. I cannot take a vow of celibacy. I need to put my boner in women. I knew that at 13 years of age. Something I wish more priests had realized when they were young. So I'm like, okay, I am not going to be a priest, but I'm still going to be very religious because my parents were super into it and I was super into pleasing my parents. So I went to church every Sunday, went to confession every Saturday and, you know, read about the saints and all that stuff. And I was super into it. When I was 14, we moved to a new parish and this parish only had one priest. And he was a, like a 70 year old guy who like slicked his hair back with brill cream. He wore these like Austin Powers glasses he used to give these like fire and brimstone sermons, which no one does in the Catholic Church. His name was Father Gallagher. And he would be up at the pulpit, wagging his finger with his hair flopping like Hitler, just going like, these kids today with the porno movies and the crack cocaine and the 40s of beer and their Ricky Lake. He was very out of touch. <laughs> he was not in touch with my day, you know? And I'm like, this is my guy? Like, this is such a step down from Father Cademo. This is all I have? But this is all I have. Like every Sunday, I'm listening to this guy give his sermons. And every Saturday, I'm confessing my sins to this guy. 14 also happens to be when I start masturbating. So now I got to go tell this old fire and brimstone guy all about that. If any of you are not Catholic, have never been in a confessional, 
the best way to describe it is it's like if a phone booth fucked a coffin. That's basically <laughs> what, what a confessional is. It's the same dimensions as a phone booth, but you feel like you're dead. It's dark, there's a big red drape. It smells like incense and old people. Terrible. And you're in the dark, just waiting. And then the priest sits down on his side, and there's some kind of sensor in there or some kind of button. Because there's this little red cross, and it lights up when he comes in. He slides back the grate. You can't see him, but there's like a thing here. You know he's there. You see his shadow. You feel his hot breath coming through. You smell his aftershave. You hear his like obscene phone call breathing. It's very uncomfortable. You feel like you're going to die. And so you got to tell this guy your sins, right? And uh, you go through like the Ten Commandments. That's how you're supposed to tell him your sins. So I'd be like, I haven't put God first in my life. I took God's name in vain. Uh, I talked back to my parents. I lied to my teacher about why my homework wasn't done. And then I would get to the masturbating part. And that seemed to be the part he was really interested in. You know, he'd always be like, how many acts of masturbation have you committed? And I, even then I was like at 14, like, why does it matter how many times? Like, is jerking off more more of a sin? If it is, I was guilty of that because my numbers for the week were like 23. You know, like I was really, the wacky inflatable arm penis I had, like I had to take care of it a lot. So then I'd tell him that and he would want to know like, have you had impure thoughts? I'm like, in my head, I'm like, yeah, don't just jerk off to nothing like a serial killer. I think about dirty things. What are you, nuts? Yes, I had impure thoughts. Oh, who did you have impure thoughts about? Oh, my friend's mom. Do we have to talk about this? Seriously, can you just do this? Give me some prayers and I'll leave. I hated it. It was very embarrassing. And he would always say, you know, your sins are forgiven, but under the sort of the caveat that you're supposed to try hard not to commit those sins again. And when it came to jerking off, I knew that was never going to happen. Like, I'm not ever going to stop doing that. You know, not to jump ahead, it's 24 years later, I haven't stopped. Um, so I would feel really guilty about it, you know, and I would try really hard not to do it, and I would fail. Late at night, I would fail, and I would jerk off, and I would cry when I was done. And I felt like an evil person, I'm a pervert, I'm disgusting, I'm going to hell. And I had this purple shirt, right? I still have this shirt, actually. It says Cape May on it. My parents brought it home from the shore. It's really soft. And I used to roll the shirt up like a bandana and tie it around my eyes to sleep, which I still do, because I have chronic migraines and I like the pressure and it, it, it blocks out the light, which helps me sleep. And I usually would cover my eyes when I jerked off so that I couldn't see what a horrible human being I was. <laughs> but when I was done, having just jerked off and cried, you know, like two separate tissues, I would <laughs> take my shirt that was already rolled up in a bandana and tie it around my throat as hard as I could and strangle myself. Because I wanted to die. Because I thought I was going to hell. Because I was an evil, masturbating pervert, you know? I, I would just see how long I could go without breathing. And after like a minute, I would give up and let it out. Now, I didn't know about like David Carradine and autoerotic asphyxiation. And I'm glad I didn't know because I'd probably be dead today. Not because it sounds cool, but because I'd like, well, I'll do that, I'll hang myself. And if I die, that's God punishing me. So going back to confession, I decided maybe I just won't mention it this time. Maybe I'll just have forgotten that I jerked off 38 times this week. <laughs> you know, it just slipped my mind. So I didn't say anything that time. But of course, Captain Hot Breath in the fucking 
telephone booth coughing. He's like, have you committed acts of masturbation? How many acts? Did you have impure thoughts? Et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, this sucks. I hate this. So my next tact was, I got an idea. I think I found a way around this. I just won't use my hands. This is classic Catholic reasoning. Listen. <laughs> A lot of boys start out masturbating by like humping the bed. They're just doing it instinctively and then at the end they go, wow, that felt really good. And that's how I started. So I was like, I'll just go back to that and then it won't be a sin, it'll be an accident. You know, like I didn't jerk off. I was just watching Janet Jackson's Anytime video on loop and humping a pillow to the beat because I enjoy that song. And then 22 minutes later, I came in my underwear, like by accident, just a freak accident. So I tried that for a little while, but every time I'd get in the phone booth coffin, I'd, I'd cave and tell him what I did. Like I knew, like, oh, it's still a sin. And I hated it. So this went on for years and I was just hating my life for many reasons, but that was one of them. And then at 19, I got a girlfriend and we started doing sex things together. Not sex, because she was very Catholic too, but you know, hand things and the occasional mouth thing. Now I gotta slide into the phone booth coffin, tell Captain Hot Breath all about it. He's got a lot of fucking questions, you know? <laughs> did you use your hand? Did she use her hand? Did she use her mouth? Did you ejaculate? Where did you ejaculate? It's a fucking CSI episode every time I get in this booth. It is awful. It's not fun. It's like telling someone else's grandfather what you do with your girlfriend. I didn't like it at all. Very uncomfortable. And after like three months of having to tell him this stuff, I'm like, I'm not going to church anymore. This is my test of faith, which is something that religious people have. They'll be like, you go away from the church for a while, and then you come back with a renewed sense of faith. I'm like, this is what I'm doing. I'm leaving the church. I'm going to go off and finger my girlfriend. I'll be back in like six years with a renewed sense, you know? But I didn't come back. And uh, at 25, I'm working at this uh, corporate job that I hate, cube job. And my desk phone rings. And I answer the phone. ASTM International, this is David. How can I help you? And on the other end, I hear, did Father Kadamo ever touch you? Uh, hello, who is this? It's mommy. Did, did Father Kadamo ever touch you? No, mom. Are you sure? You swear to God, he never touched you. Mom, never. We slow danced a couple times and he let me lead, but that was it. <laughs> that was my way of making my mother relax so she knew that nothing had happened. I'm like, what's going on? She's like, I just read in the Inquirer that Father Kadamo was a child molester. It turned out he did not get hit by a bus and get put in a convalescence home. He got caught diddling some children and got sent somewhere else to do it again. And he wasn't just a child molester. He's one of the worst I've ever heard of. Look him up. C-U-D-E-M-O, Father Kadamo. He raped girls over the span of decades. He raped a little girl with a crucifix. He had other priests rape a girl and then they shamed her together. He was a fucking monster. And I looked him up and I saw this picture of him and he has these like dark shark eyes. And I realized like this was the guy I thought was so cool that I wanted, you know, he was like my hero and I couldn't see that he was just a, a sociopath. And the only reason that I never got touched is because he only liked little girls. So I've got this horrible survivor's guilt in me and I'm like, I'm never going back to church now. I know that for sure. And around that time I start doing comedy and very quickly, my comedy gets like extremely sexually graphic to the point where my friends are like, I can't 
even watch this? Like, what, why, why is it so graphic? And I realized now, many years removed from it, that I was reclaiming my own sexuality. I was trying to own it. You know, that this was no more Captain Hot Breath. This is me. This stage is my confessional. It's very similar. You're by yourself. Uh, there's people in the dark judging you. It's a very similar situation. <laughs> But now I was in control. I decided whether or not to tell you if I committed acts of masturbation and how many impure thoughts I had. And it was very freeing for me. I also write novels, and uh, I wrote this book called Lost Touch, and it's about a, a Catholic priest that is, is killing people, and this other priest has heard his confession and knows about it and is covering it up. And the priest who heard that confession was based on Father Gallagher, a.k.a. Captain Hot Breath. And um, in the book, by the end... Father Gallagher's character kind of redeems himself. He helps the police find the killer. And for me, it was like, I'm forgiving this guy for being such a creep all those years. What a mature thing for me to do, right? You know. And then the book got published, and six months later, having dinner with my parents, my mother goes, we just found out Father Gallagher was a pedophile. Captain Hot Breath, you gotta be kidding. There's no way that guy was a pedophile. The guy who had like a, like a baseball game thing of every single thing I did, like he, he filled out like stats on me every week. That guy, really? So I'm so mad at myself that I made him like an okay character in this book and I'm gonna write a sequel to the book and everybody's gonna find out he's a pedophile and he's gonna die in an extremely violent way and that'll make me feel better. The only reason that I didn't get touched by him is because I was 14 when I met him. That is way too old. Because at that age, kid, you can't trick a kid. He'll defend himself. So I have tons of survivor's guilt. At this point, I know I'm never going back to the church. And um, my parents, you know, are very Catholic and they're great people. And they want me to get married in the Catholic church. And they want me to raise my kids Catholic. And I'm not doing it. I'm not paying any money to the church to go to their pedophile you know, defense fund, and I'm not gonna raise my kid with the same fucked up sexual values that I had. I'm just gonna let him play with his dick all he wants. It's gonna be great. He's gonna be like, Dad, I jerked off eight times today. And be like, that's a lot. That's a lot of times. I just want you guys to know that you all just clapped at the idea of me letting my son touch his dick. My son who doesn't exist. You guys are weird and I like that very much. That's really bizarre. It's really bizarre. But so, I gotta tell my parents and I know it's gonna break their hearts, you know, but I can't go back. And I've been thinking for years, how do I just break this topic? Like they watched the movie Spotlight, I'm like, here we go. And it didn't evolve into a conversation where I could tell them. So I've been racking my brain for years and then I got picked to do this show and I pitched this story and it got picked. So now I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna play them this recording when I'm not there, give them a week to cry about it and then get together and be like, okay, so that's the situation, guys. How, how do you feel about that? So I wanna thank you all for helping me bring this story to a close. You guys being here, listening to me, tell this ridiculous story. You guys are the end of my story. Thank you very much, good night. Don't have the right to ask
This is Risk. This is Mike Snow behind me now. And we just heard from Dave Teruso. That was recorded at a recent Risk Live show in Philadelphia. You can find Dave at DaveTeruso.com. That's T-E-R-R-U-S-O. Now, like I was saying before, there are a lot of newspaper reports about the alleged crimes mentioned in that story. Both cases were heard by grand juries. Both men lost their careers in the priesthood. But as far as I can tell from Google searches, neither was officially found guilty and convicted for what they were accused of. So just to be on the safe side, I want to make that clear. Also, I just got an email from Rocky Wing, the first storyteller on today's episode. He said, hey, I told that story at the Mystery Box almost a year ago. I'm happy to say that Ari and I are now engaged to be married. So congratulations to them. For our final story, we're going to hear a bit of a recent Risk live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn, where we do the show once a month. Donna Bailey reached out to us recently. She shared some YouTube clips of stories she shared around New York, and I'm so glad she did. What a lovely talent. Donna has done her share of acting and writing and now storytelling. I believe she's in the process of writing a new play as we speak. Here she is now at the Bell House in Brooklyn. It's Donna Bailey with a story we call The Player. When I first became aware of Margot, I was in the eighth grade. I knew who she was. She lived in my neighborhood. We had gone to the same grade school together. But I didn't become really aware of her until eighth grade. I wouldn't describe her as pretty, but she was very cute. She had a gorgeous figure. And she wore very tight sweaters and very tight skirts. And when she walked down the street, her behind would go back and forth and back and forth. Because Margot really liked the boys. And the boys liked her. Now, back in the 60s, A lot of black guys, and even now, had their own rap, which was the way that they would greet you when you asked them how they were doing. I'll give you an example. My father, anybody saw him or called him, say, how you doing? And he would say, oh, I'm just sitting here with the chickens. (laughs) Just sitting here with the chickens. I never knew what the hell that meant. I have never seen my father with any chickens. (laughs) My oldest brother, who was a pothead, whenever you would, you know, somebody would greet him, he would say, oh, I'm pretty fair for a square. 
Get it? Fair, square. And there was one boy, George, he had a different rap for whoever it is he ran into. And the rap that he would give me, I'd say, how you doing, George? And he would say, I'm Superman, able to leap tall buildings with a single bound. And you, baby? <laughs> Black eyes. <laughs> well, Margot had her own rap, too. She was the only girl I knew who had her own rap. It was very unusual. So when you would see her, she would say, I'm the player. I play the field. I play the field. Because you see, Margot really liked the boys. <laughs> now back in those days, we used to have house parties. And the house parties were always in the basement. You had like maybe a red light bulb or blue light bulb. You had a record player. Margaret was a very good dancer. But she was also good at something else. If you know what a basement looks like, that's where the furnace is, and there's a little crawl space by the furnace. And she would go into that crawl space, and she would make out with whatever boy wanted to make out with her. We all knew this. One night I was at a party with her, and her brother, her oldest brother, showed up. Tall, mean. He didn't speak to anybody, walked over to the record player, took the needle off the record, said, okay, let's listen up. I'm looking for my sister. I know she's here. One of the boys pointed to the furnace, and uh, he said, okay, come on out, Margot. You gotta come out. And she slowly walked out. Her hair was askew. Her blouse was unbuttoned. Her skirt was wrinkled. She walked really slowly up the stairs. And when she got to the top, she waved. Bye, y'all. I love you all. Like she was some kind of movie star or something. And then one of the boys would murmur, yeah, Margot, we love you too. <laughs> and the boys would snicker, her brother would frown, and the girls would look down at our feet, embarrassed. Oh my God, I can't believe he said that. That is so nasty. Oh, that's so disgusting. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. There was a comical side to Margot, and that had to do with French class. Mrs. Bump was the French teacher at West Junior High School in Akron, Ohio. And she would greet each student as they came in. Bonjour, mademoiselle. Bonjour, monsieur. And we had to answer her. Bonjour, Madame Bump. The funny part of that class was when Margot was asked to recite. I don't know whether Margot just didn't want to speak French properly, or she just didn't know how to do it. I'll give you an example. Um, comment allez-vous? Margot's version was, come on, 
Chalet-vous, baby. Pate coup We thought that was so funny. Mrs. Bump did not. No, no, no. Comment allez-vous? Comment allez-vous, baby? Margo, Margo. She insisted on calling her Margo. And this would piss Margot off. No, my name is Margot. No, no, no. The T is silent. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Sometimes the arguing would get so bad, Margot would be sent to the principal's office. I knew she was failing in that class, and I asked her, I said, Margot, why did you sign up for French? She said, oh, girl, French is a love language. You know, English ain't got no love in it, Donna. And I looked at her for a moment, and I said, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I see. When we got to high school, her reputation was pretty much set in stone. Boys would walk through the hallways and they would say, Margot's got it, pass the word. Margot's got it, pass the word. But she didn't seem to care about what people said behind her back. I'm the player, I play the field, I play the field. We graduated in 1966, and I guess about a year after that, I ran into her at J.C. Penney. <laughs> she looked a little rough around the edges. There were rumors that she was a prostitute. But I knew that couldn't have been true because her parents were very strict and she was still living at home. How you doing, Margot? Oh, you know me, girl. I'm the player. I play the field. I play the field. Donna, are you in college now? I said, yeah, yeah. You like school? I love school. Girl, I couldn't handle that school mess, girl. I just couldn't do it, you know? I, I just, I couldn't do it. You know, all that tea is silent shit? You know, I just couldn't do it. <laughs> Donna, why don't you call me so we can hang out? You and I just hang out, okay? Call me. Okay, Margot, I'll call you. But I knew I wasn't going to call her. Margot was the girl that our parents told us not to hang out with. Margot had a bad reputation. About six months later, Margot died. There were rumors that she had died of a botched back alley abortion. The truth was that she died of an aneurysm. Here one moment, 
go on the next. I have never talked to anybody who went to her funeral. I never read any announcement. Nobody knew where it was. She was only 19. People in Akron, Ohio, still badmouth her after all these years. And when they do, I make a point to stand up for her. And there's a reason why I do that. Because you see, I was a lot like Margot. I like the boys too. But the difference between Margot and I is that I kept my virginity until my wedding night, which is what girls did back then. I had a bad girl sensibility, but I wanted a good reputation. I kept my grades up and my legs closed. But I spent a lot of hours on couches kissing and making out with boys. I mean, I would kiss so much sometimes I thought my lips were going to fall off. <laughs> I like the boys too. But there was another reason. I was born out of wedlock in 1948. That's a big scandal back then if a woman had a child out of wedlock. My mother was thrown out of the house when she was seven months pregnant with me. Now, she redeemed her reputation when she married a man who adopted me. So in the court of public opinion, she was a missus, so she was fine. But in the court of her family, she was still a bad girl. And because I looked so much like my mother, I was a bad girl too. Oh, she's just like her mother. She's so hot to trot. Well, you know what? I was hot to trot. <laughs> but I cared about my reputation. I didn't want boys going through the school saying, Donna's got it. Pass the word. Donna's got it. Pass the word. And my mother had sat me down and she had lectured me because she could see I was boy crazy. And she said, yeah, boys want what they want, but when they get what they want, they won't respect you in the morning. I didn't want to bring more shame onto the family. I thought, what if I have sex and I get pregnant? I was terrified of that. But Margot was my spirit animal. She was. I loved her daring, her boldness, and I also disliked the fact of the double standard that said that boys could do whatever they wanted to do, but a girl had to wait until her wedding night. So when they start up with me in Akron, Ohio, and they start bad-mouthing her, because you see, I know a whole lot of born-again Christians there. They love putting people down. <laughs> because let's face it, folks, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, Margot never hurt anybody. Thank you for listening to my story.
all for this week's episode folks this is carsey blanton behind me now as well as the neighbor's barking dog uh i will now read to you where risk is showing up next actually the story studio is producing a show like i said before on august 18th it's called in it together stories of strength in diversity uh, go to speak up rise up Com to find out about the tickets. It's at the Connolly Theater on August 18th in New York City. On August 19th, we're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. And on August 30th, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. So come out to see us, Brooklyn, on August 30th. On September 9th, we're in Salt Lake City, Utah. The theme that night is Unexpected and we are still taking pitches. On September 26, we're doing a very special show along with body storytelling from San Francisco. You know, we've done risk slash body co-productions before in San Francisco, but for the first time, we're going to be doing it at the Bell House in Brooklyn on September 26, a very special risk and body show together again. On November 3rd, we are back in Baltimore, Maryland. The theme is Obsession. We're still taking pitches for that one. On November 9th, Chicago, Illinois. The theme is Revealing. We're still taking pitches for that. November 10th, Madison, Wisconsin. The theme is huge. Still taking pitches for that. Detroit. We are in Detroit on November 11th. The theme is surprise. And we're still taking pitches for that. On December 2nd, we're in Phoenix for the first time ever. The theme is jaw dropping. And we're still taking pitches for that. To pitch us for any of those shows, go to risk-show.com slash submissions and everything you need to know is there if you want to get some education in storytelling you can find us at the storystudio.org all kinds of education online courses one-on-one uh, -on -one training over skype training that we do for staffs of corporations that's all at the storystudio.org folks today's the day Take a risk. You don't scare me. Yeah. Uh, uh, mm, 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 mm. 
Oh my gosh, folks. I totally forgot. My editor just reminded me. Jeff Barr, the episode editor, just called me to remind me. This was our 350th episode. 350 episodes of Risk. This whole thing started. I had zero dollars to my name. So it just started from from nothing. And here we are now. 350 episodes, folks. Holy camoly. <laughs>